Now, who doesn't love picking brains of others? It is probably my favorite thing to do, and this podcast episode is brought to you by a virtual meetup that I hosted a little while ago, and it was with Joy Wargo. What? So fun, so cool. Half of it is a convo with me and her. The other half is where you and everyone else could have asked questions, did a live Q&A with Joy. Here is the podcast episode with Joy Wargo, the Futurity Trainer. I started out training. My first fraternity horse was in 2008. Um, my first good fraternity horse was in 2010, the Smoking Colina horse. I uh, won a little bit there and we sold him. Uh, from there, I was able to start training horses full time. Um, that horse uh, probably did as much for me as any of them. Uh, I was able to win the AQHA World on him. He won second at the BFA fraternity um and then he went on to win quite a bit in the open later on that's awesome did you like because I remember you saying just about how you kind of got into training it was more or less that you weren't able to maybe like buy what you wanted so you're like I have no choice and I feel like a lot of us would be in that place of like I can't afford to buy a finished horse but I can buy a project and make it something like was it kind of like that with Smoke and Colina as well um so the smoke horse, actually, that's how we were making extra money. We were buying a couple horses a year and training on them and then selling them. Um, the first couple of fraternity horses I had were reject reining horses. Um, the smoke horse, we actually bought two that year. They were out of full sisters and by the same stud. So they were like seven, eight siblings um, with the intention to sell them in the BFA sale at the end of the year. We bought them about February of their two-year-old year. They weren't even halter broke yet. So we got them started. Um, by the time we sold them, you could rope both ends, the head and the heel and, and run the barrels on them. Uh, the smoke horse didn't bring what I wanted. Uh, we were hoping for like 7,500 for him and ended up buying him back and we sold the other one to add Waddell. Mm -hmm. And then I tried and tried to sell smoke the next year and couldn't get it done. And finally we ran him and he was really successful and so that worked out well, but ideally, you know, I guess we all start out with this the, the dream about rodeo. And then when we left college and moved down here, we both had went to college on rodeo scholarships. Um, and when my horse got a little older and she just wasn't fast enough to be competitive at the pro rodeos and the amateur rodeos down here are super tough too. Uh, and obviously I couldn't afford to buy the hundred thousand dollar horse. So I just kind of started piddling with a couple of colts. Um, the very first one I had was actually supposed to be a ranch horse for my dad. And um, that he ended up being pretty nice in the barrel race. And I remember, I think maybe the first person I asked about it was I had asked Sharon Hall, you know, where, if you want a fraternity one, where do they need to be? And she's like, ah, about seven tenths off. That's where that colt was. So we went ahead and entered him. Uh, didn't really win much on him. But I learned a lot about the fraternities, and he ended up being a really nice horse that went on to make some really happy later. Yeah, that's so cool. So it just kind of like snowballed the whole kind of, I guess, the trial and error of figuring out futurities. Because I mean, like, if you don't know, you don't know. And then once you kind of start doing it, you figure out the whole game. So what was that like? Like, was there any kind of mindset obstacles or just any literal obstacles that you had overcome to kind of get in the futurity game and actually be competitive? Well, I, 
<clears throat> when those Colts were in the sale in Oklahoma City, um, Latresa Duke, uh, now Latresa Mundorf, um, she'd come by and had talked to my husband and said they were nice Colts. And as she's walking off, I was walking up and Trent's like, hey, that lady just was looking at your Colts, said they were nice. I'm like, oh, my God, you know who that is? That's Latresa Duke. Holy shit. Um, so he's and she come back by later. He visited with her and she's like, oh, bring her over and introduce her. Well, 10 years ago, I wouldn't. I barely spoke. I, unless you point blank asked me a question, mm-hmm. I wouldn't answer you. I was super quiet, really shy. And so Trent took me over, introduced me to Latrice, and she's like, come ride sometime. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And <laughs> turns out I was really struggling with that cult later on. And I, it took me probably six months to work up the courage to call her and finally got a day to go ride with her. And she helped me tremendously like she changed the world for that horse um I went home worked on him for a couple weeks come back did the things she'd asked me to do and he was a completely different horse um she told me she's like you need to ride this horse at least through the juvenile I'm like you know and at that point I couldn't get rid of him so I'm like okay uh she convinced me to enter the slot race uh the last time they had the champions of champions in Ardmore um and he won third. So his first check was $18,000. Um, Heck yeah. <laughs> at the very first fraternity horse I had, I had to sell that horse so I could afford the entry fees to run that smoke course that year. Um, it, it turned out well. He ended up winning quite a bit. So yeah. that worked great. But I think the toughest part of the fraternity deal is it's expensive. It's really expensive. You know, your entry fees are anywhere from 350 to $1,000. Um Mm-hmm. If you slot race, it's anywhere from a thousand to five thousand, and that's really tough. But the really neat thing about the fraternity world is, what I have found is those girls are and guys um, both. Um, they're a lot more willing to help you. Mm-hmm. They have like it seems like a lot of the open races and the rodeo stuff. People are a little catty and they they don't want to share information. These guys at the fraternities are outstanding and if they watch you struggle enough someone will finally ask you like uh do you want some help yeah and they'll they'll help you and Uh I mean those guys I and on the and I got really lucky you know because Latrice helped me with that that smoke horse um and then I don't know if they felt sorry for me or what but you know here I was I went everywhere by myself I had one horse I didn't know anything I didn't hardly talk and her and so Latrice and J.O. were super nice to me. Uh, Jolene Montgomery was super nice to me. Those girls kind of took me in and they, they included me every time they went eight. They, they helped me when I needed help. And I'll never forget at the end of the year, um, Smoke ended up winning second uh, at the BFA fraternity. Um, Jolene Montgomery won it that year. And I believe it was on Ace My Bully. She apologized for outrunning me. Like she come out, she gives me a big hug and she, she's like, man, I'm sorry. Oh, like that's insane. That Who is does insane. that? And those guys, they were so welcoming, welcoming, mm-hmm. and they were so willing to help you when you needed help. And still today, I mean, I got to spend all day riding with, um, Ashley Schaefer and Will Bear today. So like, yeah. it's just, it's really neat to be able to bounce ideas off of them and get help when you need it. And 
like I said, they're super good about if I have a question or I'm struggling, I'm like, do you guys give anything or what are you doing with headgear? How would you work this horse? They're all so, and I, I think every one of them, not just, you know, the little group I have of friends, but I think anytime I've had a question, any one of those fraternity trainers has been willing to help me when I called and asked. Yeah, exactly. I feel like in that sense, it just made me think of like, you're kind of there for the horses. It's not about, oh, I need to prove myself, but everyone's there to help make the horse have a, the best chance of a good career. So like you're willing to help. And I'm sure like that'd be such a welcoming experience as a beginner to just feel that, of, you know, like, Oh, you know, like we're all here for the same thing. And I definitely noticed like with you and everything you've been posting and just being such an advocate for our sport, like that's super important to always think of. It's not just about us, but it's about how we can better our horse and make our horses the star and kind of go on to have a successful career. So with that, I was just kind of wondering like with, all your social media and stuff, what kind of made that switch? Cause there are a lot of riders. And like you said, if you're down there, like I'm in Canada, I feel like a lot of people here are in Canada or not down in the States with big futurity. So just with that, like how um, was that you're kind of like the one that really shows the behind the scenes of what it's really like and just the mindset and how to really better our horsemanship. So what kind of was that shift for you to really start promoting the sport and promoting horsemanship? I think the biggest thing was I'm the general public. Like I, I see these guys train and like, and especially coming up through the fraternity stuff, um, you know, like Troy Crumrine is so talented. He has so much timing and so much feel. And I, I don't know if he was born with it or he had to learn it. I know just based on my experience, I thought I knew quite a bit when I moved down here. I'd had a full scholarship to the University of Wyoming Rodeo. And um, I got down here and took a job cleaning stalls for a snaffle bit trainer because that was the only thing I could find. I mean, I had a college degree, but that was about all I could find. Mm-hmm. And I learned really quickly. I didn't know anything about riding a horse. I'd sat on it. I'd looked it around. I didn't know what my legs were for. I didn't, there was so, so much I didn't know. And we ended up being in like the horse capital of the world for the raining and the or near the cutting. And there's so many really outstanding horsemen here that I've been really fortunate. I've got to spend time riding a lot with Del Hendricks from the raining. He does cow horse now, but we've got to ride a day or two with Todd Bergen. So we've got to really spend some time with some outstanding horsemen. And I think although those disciplines are different, Mm-hmm. it's you still need a horse that's broke you still need a horse you can communicate with um if you don't have a foundation when we add speed things fall apart and so many of those things go towards that and like I said I I was the general public I had to learn how to train a horse I had to learn how to be more athletic and how to ride one better and mm-hmm. I had to learn the timing and the feel and it's just taken it's taken forever but So I feel like there's a spot where I relate better Mm -hmm. to normal people than some of those guys that just are just good at what they do. Uh Or like, are you a first generation barrel racer? Um, I grew up on a ranch, but I was the the only one that rode and run barrels. Yeah. So it's not like, cause I totally relate to that where, I mean, 
you know, we had horses and then it was me that really started to take the initiative and want a barrel race. And then it's just like a totally different world. And like you said, you think, you know, and then you go somewhere else and are with more knowledge, more history and knowledge. And you realize how much you kind of don't know yet. And I think doing like the interns are so important. So is it kind of like an internship that you did with the Rainers? Um, no, I, we're just, we're right in the middle of like the heart of the rain and horse industry. My husband shoes rainers. Um, and I, when I've needed help and I've struggled, I, I spent a lot of time riding with Jack Kelly, which is a snaffle bit trainer. Um, and then just a lot of times based on who my husband knows, I've been able to get a go ride with some of these other guys when I'm, when I'm struggling. And mm-hmm. if I have a horse, I can't get their hip underneath them or I think it's under them, but it, apparently it wasn't enough mm-hmm. and I can go spend an afternoon riding with those guys. And there's been times they've been able to help me without ever getting on. Sometimes they'll get on and show me some stuff. A few times they've let me ride a couple of their horses and you're like, Oh, well, that's what that feels like. <laughs> and those horses have so many more buttons compared to, to what we have, but also it'd be really, really difficult to control all those buttons at speed. Yeah, it'd be too complex, um, way too complex. Yes, it would. Yeah. And and you got to keep in mind, too, that all these guys that I get to ride with and the people I spend my time with, they ride eight to ten hours a day. Like, that's all they do. Yeah. So to translate that back to the guy that has one or two horses and you ride two or three days a week for an hour, mm-hmm. I think button saddle time makes a big difference mm-hmm. on what you can get done on one. Um but I think in the barrel race, it, the, one of the great things is it's, it's available to everybody. It's, it can be inexpensive. It can be really expensive, mm-hmm. but there's, it's so available that anybody can do it. And that's fantastic. But at the same time, you know, here's a horse, go run the barrels, go fast. And there's a lot of times that we're, we've never had a formal riding lesson. We didn't learn how to stop one and turn it around. We didn't learn how to move ribs, cage and hips and mm-hmm. shoulders. And, and then we just keep having that hammered to us about it's a speed event. Go fast, go fast. Well, yeah. sometimes well, when shit's falling apart, you don't know how to fix it. And going fast isn't the answer. You only can try to go fast so much. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> Especially when it's not, when things aren't right for sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But it just, I think there's a really big lack of horsemanship in our world. And a lot of it is, and I ignorant sounds bad, but we just don't know yep. a lot of this. And I, I was that person, you know, I've been fortunate to, to learn a lot over the last 10 or 12 years and really been thankful for that. But there's still so much more for me to learn and so much, so many things I could do better. Yeah, especially as it made me think of just when you surround yourself with those people, it forces you to naturally level up as well. Like you can be ignorant, but if you don't, you know what I mean? Like if you don't know it, but then when you surround yourself with people that do know it, I find that ignorance really isn't an excuse anymore because you're surrounded by people that know. And like you said, you make that phone call to go get help and it's just so surrounded by you based on your your surroundings, right? Where it just kind of naturally makes you pay more attention, hopefully. Well, and you know, like you'd asked earlier about the fraternity stuff. Um, I think one of the neat things about that is there's so much for, there's so much incentive for amateurs or like first time fraternity trainer type deals Mm -hmm. and things like that. And like I said, 
to me, as far as a group, I really like the fraternities and those people because they, one, we get humbled like every time we turn around. So like you might've won the round to break the pattern the next day. So you never get so big, you know, you never, even those girls that, you know, Cassie and Jolene that have won a couple million dollars, those girls both super humble, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they never get overly, you know, their head never gets huge because they know, you know, tomorrow one of them Colts will make you look like an, a punk. Yep. So yeah. it's pretty easy to, stay level-headed yeah even if you don't want to horses will make you <laughs> right yeah yeah but yeah my colts embarrass me day to day like there's so much of which was really hard on the social media stuff one I know you'd asked about that there's there's not a lot of these trainers that do it and I think mm. a lot of it is because they're so they're busy training yeah. and a lot of us are not too much into technology you know we'd rather be in the barn we'd rather be on a horse and we don't know how to work stuff so we just yeah. and we don't want to learn it um but at the same time that's been an experience this year to share the good with the bad and mm-hmm. the one colt I have that's I've got three really really nice colts that are all real even um but the one gilding that that won the first round of the juvenile this year um he makes me look like an ass every day like he's terrible. <laughs> he acts like such a jerk. He shakes his head and acts like he doesn't know what being broke is and how to behave. And yeah. it's constantly embarrassment. But then, you know, it's also nice to know that a horse can act that way and still win. Mm, this is true. So with that, like, just what is it like? Cause you've obviously like, it's super time consuming with all your posts and stuff. Like how have you enjoyed that journey of just sharing the ups and the downs? It's, I really enjoy when, you know, you get a message and somebody says you, you helped, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, I thought things were supposed to be perfect and they're not. And it's, mm-hmm. it's nice to know that they're not. It's nice to know that you guys, that all that, you know, people that train horses for a living, they struggle every day too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't get easier. Like one horse will be easy and the other three or four will be tough. Yeah. Um, so that's really made a difference you know it's it's nice to know that it's it's helpful and that it's worth the time that you put into it um on the flip side of it there's you get quite a bit of what are you going to do to fix that like why are you putting up with that shit how are you even dealing with that like man he's a jerk but you know he wins the round yeah you figure out a way to deal with it because he's a winner. And mm-hmm. if you want to win, then you overlook some of the yeah. little, little yeah. stuff that goes with it. I actually love that. Usually the, well, it's like a known fact, all the really good horses, like they're not perfect. You have to put up with those weird quirks or you might not be able to go on a trail ride ever, or they just, you know, are just, they're just quirky. And yeah, you understand that cause you're on their back and you get the best feel for that where someone's seeing it online, they can be couch jockeys and, tell you kind of (laughs) what to do. But with that, like I find this last year, obviously like you've grown a lot and you've had a lot of really cool successes as well. How has that been? And do you find, cause you've been posting a lot about 
your fitness journey as well as horse training. Can you please share some of that with us? Because I'm dying to hear just how that whole, like how it came about, how you got motivated to go and show up at the gym and also just staying consistent and keep going. Well, I am like one of the laziest people ever. (laughs) So I, dude, I would not work out. I, and because I'm active enough mm-hmm. with the horses, you know, of like course. having a lot of weight or something wasn't necessarily a big problem. But when I turned 40, I decided I was like, I was tired of getting beat. And, you know, a lot of the guys that we were that train are a lot younger than us. Um, there's a lot of kids that are a lot lighter than us. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily trainers, but jockeys and, you know, where the barrel races opened everyone you know, it's, it's tough. And prior to turning 40, I was eating bluebell ice cream with frosted flakes, chocolate syrup, and a Mountain Dew every day of the week. And that's kind of what my eating habits were. Um, you know, it got to a point that I was old enough getting out of bed in the morning, sucked your joints hurt. You were miserable. You didn't feel good. You didn't have a lot of energy. And I decided that I needed to get fit and so that I could be stronger so that I could be a better jockey. And that's where it started. And the motivation was I wanted to be a better jockey. Like Mm -hmm. I'm really comfortable with my abilities as a horse trainer, but I don't win as much as I should on the horses I'm riding. And that comes back down to me. And if I don't feel like I can train harder or put any more pressure on the horses I'm riding. So that means it's, I'm the problem. I need to pick up the slack. So I got a trainer because I knew that I would have to have somebody to hold me accountable. I had to have an appointment so that I would go every morning. Mm -hmm. And I got a trainer started there. I got a little frustrated after about five or six months that I wasn't seeing a lot of physical result. When I look in the mirror, I guess, um, I was much stronger. I was starting to set my horses better, uh, when those colts were squirrely and Mm -hmm. would jump around. Um, I found it didn't bother me as much. Um, it used to make me really uncomfortable, mm. but the stronger my core got, the better my balance was, the better I rode. So then when they're, they screw around, it doesn't, doesn't worry me as much as it used to. Um, then I started working on eating better, eating cleaner. Um, and not so much, I guess, you know, probably needed to lose a little bit of weight, but at the same time, I decided that, damn it, if I'm going to work this hard in the gym, I want, I want you to, when you look at me, know that I put in time. You know, I'm like, I want to see something because it's hard work. It's not something I enjoy doing. And, you know, like, I want to see a result. Absolutely. Um, and then I got involved with First Form. Um, and through them, I learned more about supplementation, more about my nutrition, um, what I found was the like to walk into the gym terrified me and I'm just now getting to where I can go to the gym by myself and work out in public, you know, with the trainer, it wasn't a big deal because they could tell me what I needed to do, how I needed to do it. And I felt like I didn't feel like I didn't know anything because I was really uneducated about it. So once I started learning more about correct form and all that good stuff where I wasn't so embarrassed about being in the gym, but, but a lot of those guys that it's really intimidating for me to go into the gym and you see these guys that are big and obviously do this all the time. And I'm, I'm not super social. 
I'm not going to go ask him questions. And first form was kind of a way to, to learn a lot and be networked with people that it's a culture, you know, Mm -hmm. they've, they've been there, they've lost weight. They, none of them are perfect. Their athletes aren't perfect. And it was really neat to, to have people that are like you Mm -hmm. and, and then they have great products, but they have such a neat support system that it's been really nice to have people to talk to and learn from, especially on the food and dieting stuff and better nutrition. Yeah, exactly. And you find something that works for you, like for someone maybe just walking in the gym without knowing anything, they are not phased where I'm not one of those people. Like I never was able to go in because I was like, oh, people are judging me and whatnot. And I mean, it's the same with the horse world. I find like people are scared to show up to a barrel race or something because they think they're going to get judged and everyone's staring at them and watching every move. But the really like mostly they're not and people like you said the futurity people they're proud and they're wanting to help other people if they see them struggling and you know I find the gym is mostly like that as well but I still like your approach with just finding kind of what suited you and now having the confidence and just gaining I think it's more gaining the knowledge and then getting confident like knowledge is confidence and once you have those then it kind of snowballs to where you're able to do it on your own and feel good about it and not the, you know, the insecurities. So with that, how has like the transformation been for you from, from A to B or from A to where you are now? Um, I was surprised at how much physical fitness applies to mental strength. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the more, the better I feel. So the better I eat, the more I work out, the better I feel, the better I feel, the bigger my confidence is. Um, the stronger my mental game is about, you know, when you lift something you didn't think you could lift or you, you want to quit, you know, it's so easy in that first half mile when you're out running to just like that first half mile sucks. I'm like, there's no way I can't make three. There's no way. And then all of a sudden you get past that point. And you, you work through it and you find yourself doing things that you didn't think you could do. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden that starts to apply to everything else in life. Um, and to me, that confidence changed. And when it did, so did my jockey skills. So did the way I approach things. Um, and like I said, I started feeling better about the way I sat my horses, the way that went. And then just, I think, being strong enough to work through the days that you don't want to do it makes a big difference and it's it starts to change your mentality mm-hmm. realize and that affects everything yeah absolutely I love that once you realize you're like I actually can do this and you start gaining confidence in yourself and then what you said with riding you're gaining confidence now in your horses so it's like this is just such a good advantage for anyone that wants to kind of they want to level up but you really have to level up yourself and then it just kind of levels up every aspect so how um like when you're kind of approaching an event or something do you change anything with your fitness or your diet to get ready for it or um no so right now I have a trainer three days a week here in town that I go work out with and that's mostly lifting Mm -hmm. um and then I have a trainer on Instagram uh roster runner and I I found him i listen to a podcast. And so this guy, Dan is, um, he's an ultra runner. Now he was on some fitness show. I'm going to draw a blank now. Ninja warrior. He was on Ninja warrior for like two seasons. 
he like as a warrior yeah oh geez. he was on the show for a while and he he um learned how to ride bulls from gary lefew um went through the lamar horse training program and i'm like okay that that's what i'm looking for like somebody that understands the physicality of what we're doing and mm-hmm. it's not you know yes core strength's important but so is stability and balance and um getting to visit with him was really neat and he started doing some programming for me and it started it's some crazy stuff that he has me do like mm-hmm. I, I look at his program i'm like there's no way i can't jump on one leg and land on the bow's eyeball and like do all this other crazy stuff but um That's same okay. thing you know the more he got you to do it the more the better your balance was the, the stronger you were in your core your stability was better and it started to change the way i rode it um, he's also big on cardio as far as, um, not so much for like losing weight, but cardio so you can breathe during a run so that your brain functions while you're running. And what I found was that changes things as far as there's times when you kind of glaze over and you're not quite sure what even happened when you were in the arena. Um, and the better my cardio strength is, the better my brain functions in a run the slower things go for me to be able to think about and correct and and Mm -hmm. change. Wow. That's awesome. I actually never really thought of it that way, but it makes so much sense. Like you're working on your breath work without even riding. And I mean, I'm, I'm like the biggest fan of doing things outside of the saddle that will help in the saddle. And I feel like you're just such a big advocate of showing that to everybody else. So I just, I just love that because, yeah, like there's so much we can do as riders that will eventually help our horses. So with that, is there any kind of advice, let's say if someone was trying to get more fit, because that's such a huge, like you said, it's like you work on one aspect and it just kind of switches over to your nutrition because you want to start leveling up and bettering and actually showing and seeing the results. So you're going to start eating better. So there's someone with the whole New Year's resolution. It's January what kind of advice, like how have you been able to really stay really focused and keep it a priority for you? Um, you know, I think the easiest, probably the easiest way for me to do it is to make sure that I do something every day, even if it's just walk. Like even if I just go for a 30 minute walk, making sure that I do something every day, because that seems to be, it becomes a habit, you know, the discipline's there. And if you do something little, even if it, even if you don't have time to do a full workout, if you do 10 minutes of abs or just anything Mm -hmm. that before long, it becomes habit and it gets a lot easier all the time. Um, What I found with the eating better, it's easiest for me to count macros and I don't necessarily keep track of a bunch of it, but the protein, what I've found is if I reach my protein goals every, every day, um, it's a lot easier for me to lose weight, maintain weight and things like that. Um, if you're trying to lose weight to keep a, a protein goal and a calorie deficit is the easiest way for me to do that. Um, like there was a point last fall, I broke my collarbone. I guess not last fall, fall before. So the Colts I have right now were two year olds. Um, and I was two months that I didn't ride a horse. Um, I sat in a lawn chair and watched the girls load my horses for two freaking months. I was going crazy. And the first month they didn't want me doing anything cause they was, they didn't want it to displace. So I didn't have to have surgery. Um, and I used the first form, tra- my transformation app 
I messaged my uh, nutrition guy on there, um, Jeremy Mullins, and I'm like, hey, I broke my collarbone. I can't do anything. Can you tell me what my food requirements need to be so I don't gain a bunch of weight since I'm not doing anything at all? Like everything stopped. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he changed my calorie count and told me how much protein I needed to have. And uh, everything stayed exactly where it needed to be during that two month period where I couldn't do anything. That's awesome. And then as I went back to having more activity, then calories went back up. But mm. what I've found, um, is like I said, the protein's really important. And when I get my protein and I eat clean and when I say clean, like I try to avoid a lot of processed stuff, um, because I feel better that way. Like my, I don't have as much inflammation in my joints and I don't ache and have a bunch of discomfort when I get out of bed and I don't have as much muscle soreness. Mm. Um, and the more I've kind of correlated those two and my energy levels, that's made it easier for me to eat better. You know, like if I, and I'm not perfect, you know, we still have pizza now and then and burgers and things like that. But what I've found is if I, if I have a bunch of carbs and I eat a bunch of processed stuff, like I'm really tired and I just kind of like, I want to not do anything. And then I'll find if I do it more than a day or two, I'll start to be achy and, like, I just I feel like crap. And yeah. then you go, oh, okay. And then when you go back to eat and clean, I feel so much better. And, you know, I don't need Advil and I, I don't need all this other stuff. And it's, I don't know, I feel so much better that it's worth it. Yeah. Like the trade-off is worth it. Exactly. And I like what you just said and always with like the end goal where you know, you know how it's going to make you feel if you do it. And I find that's for myself anyways as well. It makes it so much easier because like even doing this tonight, I'm like, I want to be on my game. So I'm like, I'm not going to eat McDonald's today because I know it's going to like mess with my head and just make me feel more blah. And when you think about that, it makes it, like you said, just so much easier to stay going. Does anyone have questions? I feel like this is a halfway point. Is there anyone that has a question? I get way more out of me if somebody asks something. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask Joy, do you break your own Colts or do you send them to a Colt starter? And what do you look for them to have when you take them in? Like, what do you prioritize before you put them on a pattern? Um, my Colts go uh, out usually the very beginning of their two-year-old year, -old year um, to a professional Colt starter. Uh, those guys usually ride them about six months before I take them. Uh, I know how to start a horse, um, but it's so much faster. Those guys, like, that's all they do. They're really good at it they can accomplish things so much quicker than I can. Uh, so it's a lot easier for me just to have those horses ridden with the two-year-old guy till they're got about six months. And usually by then they're really pretty broke. Um, what I need them to do when they get to my house for me to go straight to the pattern is I need them to be able to lope big circles, small circles with their shoulders elevated. Um, I need them to understand how to move off a leg. Uh, I need them to be able to pick up their leads uh, some collection. They need to be able to stop. Um, I enjoy a horse that's really broke, but I also have learned along the way that the more we get into these horses that are really specialty bred for the barrel race, um, a lot more, there's a lot more things I got to let go. And, and depending on the horse too, you know, like mm -hmm. if I have a dash to fame, that's, got a lot of set and loses a lot of momentum going to a turn, I don't stop those horses very much. So I'll kind of change my program to just depending on what the horse is and how they want to work the barrels. But typically um, 
they come in, they can lope those circles, big and small, shoulders elevated, they can stop. Um, they have a little collection through their face and their body. Know their leads. Um, then it depends on my comfort level on one before I start one on the pattern. Um, like this <clears throat> this fall when my two-year-olds came in, I had a, a little streak of flame that was really, really narrow, like really narrow, like riding a stick is what it felt like. And she was squirrely. So I know that mare is going to need to be desensitized a little because when we start going around the barrels, there's a lot of butt slapping the saddle and kind of getting out of shape and some jiggy moves. And um, that mare is going to be tough to ride. Uh, when my black colt, the tink colt come in, um, the freckles to fame stud colt I have, he's a big horse. He's really broad. He's feels really mature. I took him straight to the barrels the day I picked him up. Nice. The other mare, I probably rode two months before I started her on the pattern, just because, like I said, she was real squirrely and real feely and would kind of get a little out of, out of shape really easy. And mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to get drilled. So once I get comfortable, then I'll start them on the barrel, barrels. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's why I was wondering if it's a feel for you, no matter, it's not just a set age, it's what you feel capable of before you take yeah. them. Yeah. Right. He's so nice. I really, he was so nice. I couldn't believe he was so young. He's, I know exactly the horse you're referring to. He's so nice. Tink, uh, he's been roping. I have to go pick him up tomorrow. He's got to be a gilding. He can't handle oh, no. it. Yeah. Oh, no. I know. I'm sorry, I'm bud. About it. I'm like, oh, I'm so hoping. But when, when we've got him with a show roper, um, Cause I was, I was hoping to have him fraternity in the rope and two, and then, uh, the pink buckle breakaway as well. Um, and he's like, I can't keep him focused. And I'm like, I was afraid of it. But so Tink is going to be a gilding this week. Poor guy. But <laughs> gotta do I'll be, he'll be home for a little while. So we'll go back to the barrels. So hopefully I'll have some new videos of him mm -hmm. in the next couple of weeks working the barrels. Do you find a difference if you're working with a stud and then they get cut? Like, will their personality change at all? Yeah. Not, not so much their personality, but um, the the uh, wild child's got cash. You know, the gilding that won the juvenile or won the first round of the juvenile. He um he was a stud um, just because his mama has won like three hundred fifty thousand. So we we're gonna try and see because it would have been a, a pretty good off you know, an outcross. Um, and he was so bad about his head and flipping it. And if he was that way that early, which don't get me wrong, the head flipping didn't go away. But the thing with the stud, it seems like they have most of the time there's some, the studs coming out somewhere, whether it's they squeal and they talk a lot and they're obnoxious or they pull on the bridle. Like when they stood up, they pull against you and they're kind of crappy in their face. Um, and where that one was bad in his face already, it was like, there's no way this is going to work. And then if he gets aggressive to go with it, it just, it wasn't happening. So we, we got him cut. I liked him way better afterwards. Yeah. Um, the team course, I, you know, and I've been kind of spoiled because I've, I haven't rode a bunch of studs, but the ones I have rode, um, the Frenchman are hot and the Fiesta James, both really, really nice studs, really quiet. They didn't necessarily pull on you. They didn't talk. Um, 
the Frenchman or hot stud, I could pony a mare off of him. Even after he came home from the breeding farm, he was that way. He's always been good. So Tink has been a handful. Like I have to, he bites really bad. I have to snub him like this far from the wall when you saddle him so he can't get a hold of you. Oh and gosh. you have to be pretty ornery with them. Um, Cause if they don't have any respect, they need to be scared, unfortunately. And like, I, I just, I can't be mean enough to get by him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's some of those that you can, but if, if they're losing their focus, um, you know, like this, this colt was losing his focus on cattle. If there was something going on outside of the arena, he would, his focus would leave the cow and go to the horse outside. So he's just not going to be able, like, we're not going to be able to get him shown if he stays a stud, I don't think. Yeah. So you have to make the choice basically, I guess, like if yeah. you're going to use him or is he just going to be a stud? I you know, and, oh. to, to me on the studs, they need to be outstanding bred. Um, and with this, that colt in particular, I know his dad hasn't produced anything yet because the first sets just hit the pin. But where Can Man won 400,000, his mama won 150. I'm like, and then he had really good confirmation. So I'm like, we got to try, at least see. But then to me, they need to be a performer too. And anymore, there's so many nice studs. If they can't, if that one can't perform and be a winner and have all that other stuff, he doesn't need to be a stud. Yeah. Exactly. There's so much to choose from. Like, it's so competitive. So if it doesn't kind of check mark all the boxes, then it's not, I guess, worth it. Well, and I think with the incentives, that changed a lot too. I mean, if you have a stud, gosh, to keep them enrolled, just in the, like the pink buckle, the ruby buckle, the breeder's challenge, the crown royal, the blue collar. I mean, you're probably looking at forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in enrollment every year. Besides advertising and breeding farm costs and all that. So like for us, for us to keep him and him be a stud, he was going to have to be fan freaking tastic. And I'm out. I can't do it. I can't do it. (laughs) We're just going to hope we can make him run the barrels really fast. Yeah. Literally might be better. I had one question I thought of just as like, as you prepare for certain events and stuff, and I know as a futurity trainer, like you said earlier, just with so much being on the line, it's completely off topic to stud ownership and stuff. But just when you're getting ready for a big race, is there anything that you do that just gets your head right or just helps kind of get you prepared for the upcoming race that you could share? <laughs> Honestly, I try to treat every race the same. It's just another barrel race. Okay. Um, for me, if I put a bunch of pressure on a race because it's got more added money or um, – you know, it's the first run these Colts are going to make or any, any of that stuff. Uh, I think it's a lot easier to pressure up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've found works best for me is if I look at it and I go, hmm, it's just a barrel race. There's another one tomorrow. There's one the day after that. So if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, if, if you go do the, if you did your preparation and you work those horses like you were supposed to, and you put the time in training them, the rest will take care of itself. And as long as you did all those things and then you rode that horse to the best of your ability that day, you can sleep at night. You know, you did all you can do. And there's so many things out of our control when we enter the arena, whether it's the ground conditions or if those colts see something that spooks them or, you know, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the easiest way for me has been just treat it like any other barrel race and ride my horse the same every day. Try to ride it the same in public as I do at home mm-hmm. and, and treat it that way. And honestly, the times that I've, in fact, I, I last week in Brian at the fraternity, I entered the slot race on that, that gilding that has been doing well. And I didn't have a great run in the first round. He pulled on me a little. And the second round, I knew, I knew you're going to have to be really fast. They were the first two holes in the slot race were a 15, six and a 15, seven. And those horses, the second day, it was one of those deals where it's your fastest time. Those horses ran 15 fives and 15 sixes the next day. So like you were going to have to be outstanding. Um, And I put too much pressure on my Colt. I asked too much of him. And then I tried to hurry him in his turns instead of waiting for him. Like I know he needs and it didn't work. Um, he didn't necessarily try to help me out at all, but I, I didn't do my job like I should have. So, you know, you look at that and you go, okay, I made a mistake. Here's where I make the adjustment next week. I'll make sure that I, I don't try to rush him through his turns. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then I go, then I come home and I start prepping for the next one. You know, I do my slow work and I make sure they're correct and I make sure they're riding like they're supposed to. We make sure they're healthy and they're feeling good. Mm-hmm. But I think if, and it's a lot easier when you ride a bunch of horses because you don't have time to dwell on the one. Like you just roll on to the next one. Um, yeah. If you're only riding one horse, I think it's really tough sometimes because you put so much pressure on yourself mm-hmm. to do well mm-hmm. and then you almost kick your own ass. Right. So, the, the more I think you can, um, one of the things that really helped me there, uh, there's a book called with winning in mind. Um, Lanny Bassam wrote it. Okay. And that was a book that really helped me keep my head together. Um, I'd read that book. The first time I'd read that book was the year 2014 when I won the world, um, in the AQHA on smoke. And I'll never forget. We got to the, the interview that day and, the lady looks at me and she goes, well, did you ever think you'd wake up this morning being a world champion? And I'm like, absolutely. Uh-huh, like, yes. <laughs> we have been working, like, that's what we've been working for for the last year, mm-hmm. you know, every day. And it was, I probably come off sounded like an ass, but that was probably one of the first times in my life that I, you know, you weren't surprised that you had one, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like, but that's been the goal. And we've, we've stayed on we've followed the plan and we've, we've done the things we needed to do every day to achieve that goal. And don't get me wrong. Things still have to go right too. But you know, that Colt, he was outstanding that year. He won both rounds of the the world show and won everything. And he, it was, it was really neat um, because he finally got the recognition for being what he was. Yeah. That's so cool. I love that. Amanda. (laughs) Yeah, hey, I was going to ask a question. Um, kind of goes back to uh, what you are saying, Joy, about, you know, rushing a horse or putting pressure on it. And I was just curious, how often, if ever, do you get to a certain point with one where you decide it's just not cut out for the maturity? Um, or do you find that normally if it's had the legwork um, and maybe, I guess, bloodlines sometimes play a role in that too, but do you find typically if you're doing your job as a rider and it's had the proper foundation, normally are you – pretty confident to roll it into a futurity or do you look at that horse by horse quite often? Um, I try to treat them all as individuals. Um, the, there's a lot of really nice horses that don't make futurity horses. Um, I think 
to me, for me to want to enter one, I ride one for typically a year and a half before I'm willing to, to enter one. So those colts go out early two-year-old year. They get started. They come to me about middle of their two-year-old year. Um, late summer, their two-year-old year. I start to pattern them. And I don't send them home. They stay with me the whole time. I ride them for that year and a half. Um, and July, August, I need them to start being about seven tenths off because that's when we start to pay some entry fees for the fall. Um, if I have a horse that's not clocking where it needs to, and if I'm if I'm putting more pressure on it and it's not taking it, then then no, I won't enter it. Um, like I had four for this year. Uh, one of the mares, three of them, we entered one we have not entered yet. Um, and the one we have not entered yet, we've decided that we'll keep exhibition in her, keep prepping her just like we were going to run her. Um, when she starts to clock where she needs to, then we'll, we'll enter. Um, otherwise, we'll hold her till she's five. Uh, the three colts that I'm running this year are really aggressive. Like they are super willing to go to the run. I don't have to kick and hustle and try. If I smooch them, like they're, they're on it. Uh, the fourth horse, it's kind of like begging for every step. Like I have to work really hard to get her to run. I have to work really hard to get her up in the hole. And I think it's more of a, just an immaturity thing. You know, she needs, she needs to find a little more try before I'm willing to, to spend a bunch of money and earn her. Um, and during the training process, you know, I think it, it changes with every one of them. You know, it, when I owned those horses, they all had to make no matter what, even if they weren't super fast and they were only 40 horses, I still needed them to be really patterned, really enjoy their job. And I treated them the same. Now I probably wasn't going to pay big entry fees on them if I didn't think I could win on them at the fraternities, but um, that didn't change the way I trained them at all. Uh, now today it's a little bit different for me because I ride some outside horses. Um, and then I do have a couple yeah. owners that have multiple horses. So if I have an owner that's got three horses in training and say, say I got three, three-year-olds for that, that owner. And one of them is really stepped up and really clocking well and doing great. And then I have one I'm working really hard on and they, you know, they, they do all right, but they're just really, they don't have a lot of try. Um, or one that's a little bit behind. I know that we're going to keep the one we think we can fraternity on and we're going to sell the others. Um, that doesn't mean they're not nice horses. It just means that I don't know that I can win on them right now. And then with that, once we get them good and patterned, um, and I typically want them patterned well, because if my name's attached to it, I want them to be nice horses and then we'll sell them. And they'll go on. A lot of them, I've had several go on to be um, like somebody's first fraternity horse or they enter the amateur fraternity stuff and they have a lot of su success that way. And then typically those guys keep entering fraternities later on. So it's been great. Mm -hmm. They keep deciding to train horses. So we get another one to our fraternity world. Yeah, right. <laughs> Anna, got a question? Yeah. Hi. Um just with so with the fourth horse that you had that um the, sorry the fourth horse that you had that wasn't wanting to go you know like it wasn't wanting to fire do you have specific things that you work on to like ask for that cue to go um 
Uh, I, so I'll breeze them a little. Um, typically when I, as they come along, a lot of times these horses kind of want to go a little bit faster and I'll kind of smooch them when they leave the turn. And a lot of times they'll get a little more explosive there. And this, this horse does, um, this particular horse is a dash to fame. Um, and to me, a lot of times those, the dash to fames, they lose a lot of momentum in their turns. Uh, they want to turn so bad that sometimes they're not as free running as some of the other horses. So that's been a little bit of a struggle. And, you know, I think it just, the personalities are different too. You know, a lot of times if I have one that's not super willing to go, I can kind of smooch them. And if they don't go, then I can take my over and under and like spank them once to where they learn that when I go, you'd better go somewhere or there's going to be a consequence for it. And most of the time that'll get one freed up a little bit more. But then there's some of these times that some of these horses, they just, they don't have as much confidence. So they don't run as hard in public as they do at home. Um, They're a little bit more worried about banners on the fence and things like that. And with those horses, I think maturity and just more experience. So we haul them as much as we can. We, try to run them in different arenas. We keep exhibitioning them and keep asking them to run. Um, like I said, I'll breeze them quite a bit and go from there, which th- this works out great because the, the people that own this horse like pushed out horses. So it'll fit them really well <laughs> later. Um, and like, so here in Ontario, we're in like lockdown, so we're not going to have any, any barrel races anytime soon. Um, so kind of, I think that everybody's kind of looking for things to do with their horses and I'm fine that I'm doing mostly, uh, just conditioning type stuff. So what's your typical day for, like, if you're doing just a conditioning day, you know, what do you kind of like time-wise, like how much are you trotting? How much are you, you know, or do you have a set thing that you do? Um, I don't necessarily have a set thing that I do. Um, as far as conditioning, I the couple older horses I have, we do some conditioning on. Um, those horses, I, I do quite a bit of trotting and loping on them um, just to make sure, one, they have enough air to run when we go places on them. And then uh, one of them is the smoke horse, and he's super physical in his turns. So I'll work him down the fence and I'll make him lope real little circles and I'll send him out of them and make him do some explosive things just because he's really, really muscle bound. And he's, like I said, he's really physical. And if all I do is long trot and lope around the edges of the arena or out in the pasture, he tears himself up when we run him like his, he doesn't use himself like he does in a run. So then he'll get super sore if he runs like a two-day barrel race or a three-day barrel race, he'll get physically sore from it. So with him, I spend a little more time doing just things that correlate to the pattern, even if it's not pattern work. Like I said, I'll work him down the fence where he has to get on his hind end. He has to drive out. He has to be quick and physical because that keeps his muscles in better shape for when he actually runs. Um, the, the Colts, I don't do a lot of conditioning on them. Um, I typically just trot them, lope them enough to warm them up. And then when we work them and as the training process goes along, we're actually cruising those horses through enough that they stay pretty fit as far as like air in their lungs and things like that, because they're working the barrels enough and we're exhibition as we prepare them to run, you know, their exhibition in late in the fall, two to sometimes three days a week. So they're running quite a bit. Mm-hmm. 
answer your question, Anna? I'm, I'm not very <laughs> yeah, good yeah, with that's like awesome. set, set time or distance. Like my pasture, I go around <laughs> on the open horses. I go, it's, so it's about a 15 acre pasture probably. And we go around, I'll tr- long trot each direction and I'll lope each direction at least once, sometimes twice. And then I'll walk them around once or twice to cool them out. Um, yeah. And then I will breeze them some too, just because when we're not running them, um, I still want them to be able to have a lot of, a lot of strength in those lungs and, and do more than just loping. So I'll sprint them some too. Nice. All right. Um, Betsy, you're first. This kind of, well, this is good. It kind of leads me into my question. Um, Joy, I was wondering, when it comes to soundness and vet work and that type of thing, like I saw you post about taking horses to vets, um, what's your routine? Are there any A, supplements that you feel every horse in your training program should be on or do you choose them individually? And B, do you do routine vet work or do you only take a horse if you feel there might be a problem developing? Why she needs her? Hold on. Oh. One sec. One oh. sec. No. Can I unmute you? There. there. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Um, yeah. Depends on where they're at in their training process. Um, like when the two-year-olds come in, I usually don't do much with them. Like we work them if they stop wanting to work or they like they get to where they don't want to finish turn or they're being bad about turning or they're not stopping things like that, then I'll go have them flexed and then we'll do whatever we need to do with that. Um, the open horses, um, I get them flexed before major events, the fraternity horses before every major fraternity, um, as far as supplements go, my older horses are on Atticorn. Um, the, I have two older horses. The Cashin on the Bayou is 12, crap, he's 13, and Smoke is now 15. So those horses are on Atticorn on a regular basis. Uh, otherwise, I don't really keep horses on a lot of supplements. I do use the silver lining herbs, uh, especially the immune support when I'm traveling. If I need something else, for something specific, then I'll use those supplements. If an owner wants a horse on supplements, I'm willing to feed them. What happens with the training program, I think too, is if you have a lot of horses and all of a sudden you're buying all these supplements, it gets really expensive and it gets really difficult for whoever's feeding horses when you're gone to try and get things right. Um, I, I use a little bit more uh, gut health stuff than I do. You know, and because we ride young horses, I don't have them on a lot of joint supplements and things like that. You know, usually the younger ones shouldn't have a bunch of arthritis issues like the older horses have. So that's kind of where we're at there. As far as the vet stuff goes, I'm I'm a big believer in knowing your horses inside out and backwards. If your horse always backs up good, he stops backing up. Or I've had them... You know, they back out of the trailer all of a sudden. They don't want to back out of the trailer. They start to get real bad about that. A lot of times those horses are sore in their hawks or their stifles, and it, it hurts them to back up. Um, it's a lot easier for me to get those things addressed when it's something minor. You know, they have a little inflammation. We can inject them, and everything's usually fine. Um, yeah. Do you uh – 
Joy? And it, oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> if I let things go, then a lot of times it starts to affect the training. And there's some of those horses that if they get sore, they quit trying. And if you get into them about it, they really quit trying. And sometimes you can't get them back. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to quickly ask just with that question, it made me think of, do you keep track of all your horses, like jot down how they did at a race and stuff and just for your own memory to remember kind of if you made a mistake at a race or just, you know, just to keep tabs on all your horses? Um, I, I do. I keep, <clears throat> I keep a, we have a board in the barn. Um, every one of them that gets rode every day, like there's a, a mark for everyone that gets rode, everyone that gets turned out. Mm-hmm. I have um, their vet stuff right there on the board. Anytime they've had injections, it's the date and when they had, what they had is injected there. I do keep notes um, just in a planner. Um, and I'll keep notes too on even if I have bridle changes or I feel like a horse is being super stiff in a rib or something and I it's something I want to work on, I'll make notes about it. Mm-hmm. And then we'll work on it for a while. And then, you know, I always have that to come back to. and. Or like you said, I, I keep track of even when we exhibition what every horse ran um, so I can go back and compare when I go to the same arena again where we were at last time we were there. I have all that written down. Um, I'm, I try really hard to pay attention to those things and even saddling. You know, I sat, if I saddle one and they always stand really quiet and good all of a sudden they're starting to wiggle around while I'm trying to saddle them and they're pinning their ears or they raise a leg or, you know, those are indications. They're trying to tell me that they're not comfortable. Things aren't great. Mm -hmm. The more I can pay attention to those little things, the quicker I can catch issues, the less problems I have later. Right. Makes sense. Um, Jess, did you want to go? Yeah. Hang on. Sorry. Real quick. I'm actually at the gym listening to you guys. <laughs> so, okay. So, kind of a random question, not necessarily for any age group, mm-hmm. but to give you a little bit of backstory on an experience I had yesterday. I took my dash to fame to um, a sale barn and was helping run everything. Um, in the alleyways, pushing cows down to their pens and whatnot. And um, whew, I'm out of breath. Sorry, guys. So he he's relatively new to me. I've only had him about a year. And I thought he could mentally handle it a little bit better than he did. Oh, you but haven't heard many fames, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no. But in that situation, I was stuck. I had to use him. And we had to finish the day. So when you have a day like that where shit just falls apart, how do you ride them the next two or three days? How do you handle them? Does anything, you know what I mean? Like, what do you do after they've had a meltdown? Well, the fames are known for meltdowns on a very regular basis. (laughs) He's my first. (laughs) The fames are the reason I don't have nice things. Um, <laughs> and and I look like I have a pins built for buck and bulls that are five rails of solid pipe. Um, they're tough. 
those fames are they're really tough they're a lot of them are really fragile mentally and like like you said like they short circuit and when they do they check the hell out like gone completely gone glaze over you can't get their attention if you're whipping them from the ground or you're on their back like they're just gone um man just try to stay safe while you're doing it uh (laughs) They're, they're really tough. And what I've found most of the times with those fames, when they check out, there's nothing you can do. Wait it out. When they check back in, then go try and do something about it. But once they glaze over, you can't get their attention no matter how hard you try. Um, and, and it's crazy when they, when they do it and it'll sometimes, like you said, you've had him a year. I had one a couple of years ago that she'd been great forever. We went to Fort Smith. I had her tied to the trailer. I rode off with a horse and she checked out and I mean, kicked her shoes off on the side of the trailer. I couldn't saddle her. I thought she was going to stomp me in the ground. And like this mare had always been good. And you just got to wait for it to go away. Even sedation didn't help that one. Um, I've got one right now that if I get after her, she'll come back to me. But that's the only fame I've ever had that I can like spank and they go, oh, okay, I'm sorry. But usually when they glaze over, there's not a thing you can do. You just got to wait for them to, to relax, finally chill out and calm down. And, then, and, and then we worked on that. Fine. Huh? We worked on that quite a bit with him because I, I could tell from when I first got him that he would just kind of get in his own head and, and kind of bully you a little bit. Yeah. So working on his frame of mind has been my number one goal this entire year and he's gotten better. So all I did with him today was I, I saddled him up, took him in the pasture and just walked around and asked him to do super simple things. However fast or slow he wanted to do it. And it was, you know, let him know we're good. Just pay attention. And he was, he was good. So I'm maybe that's so, the right approach with horses like that. Yeah, I think it's good to try and get him quiet. Um, but honestly, with the dash to fame, I don't even pay attention to it anymore. It happens so often with them. Like they check out and like it, if one checked out today, I'm not worried about what it's going to do tomorrow. Like, I'm not worried that it's not going to function tomorrow in the barrels because it, you know, it's it had a bad day today because that's just, that's how a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. They just periodically, they check the hell out and they, they just melt down, wash out. Like <laughs> when they do it, um, I, the one I ran last year, we got her to Guthrie this year for the BFA in November and I had sedated her to get her there because she kicks in the trailer and we got her there. And pacer stall, kick it, kick it, kick it, kick it. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this thing? Like, she'll be crippled before I even exhibition her. And ended up having to sedate her again and tie her up. And I had to leave her that way most of the day. Now, once she finally settled, everything was fine. But, man, when they are having a – when they fame out, it's tough. So, anytime they do, if you can, just stop what you're doing and – get away you know like tie them up or put them in a stall or whatever you got to do and kind of just keep yourself safe because a lot of times when they fame out they just they they have no respect for your space Mm -hmm. they i don't even know that they know you're there yeah 
Good advice. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Don't take uh, it to the feed yard anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not going to happen. He can stand tied of the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. All right. Um, Casey, did you have a question? Sorry. I got to grab a charger real quick. Okay. No worries. All right. You need to be unmuted. All right. Now it works again. Perfect. All right, Casey. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I have um, a question, I guess, coming from more of a, I guess, a beginner um, standpoint. I've only been barrel racing for a couple of years, like actually seriously. Um, and I have my first, I'm hoping to feature her. She's a coming two-year-old. Um, okay. but I just wondered if you had any advice. You said that, um, you had featured a couple of, um, raining rejects. And so this filly yeah. I have is, um, more cutting and raining bread. And a lot of the things you see these days, I guess are more geared towards those really specific barrel bread horses. Um, so I was wondering if there was anything different that you might say for a horse that's more, um, like a cutting raining bread, um, different ways to, to work them or with their mind or their body position and things like that, that might be different than these, the more, um, modern barrel lines. You know, I don't know that I would change anything. I think I, I try to, I try to treat them all as individuals. So when I, obviously you want them broke, um, you might have to work on teaching one to move out a little more if they're not bred to run, run. Um, there's a chance that if it's cutting, if it's got a lot of cow, that it's going to cow a barrel. So it's going to be really willing to turn. Um, in that event, I would probably maybe be inclined to work a little bit bigger circle on them, make sure that I had a lot of forward movement and a lot of forward motion in my turns on those horses, because a lot of times they're more of a butt dragging kind of horse that's really willing to go to the turn. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about, uh, I guess, like I said, a lot more forward movement. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about them stopping and rating unless that's an issue. Mm. But I, I also, I don't do much rating at a barrel. I don't stop my horses until later if they need it, but I, I'm a low energy person, so I don't have a lot of energy. You know, those guys that have electric butts and their horses run really hard, I'm not one of those. So I don't have to stop those either. some of the others. Mm -hmm. But I think just train them, you know, I think it's all the same. Make sure that you're consistent with the way you train them. Um, ride them to their spots. Make sure that you clear the shoulder before you start your turns. Um, just be real consistent in the way you do things and for me, that seems to be the best way to go about it. Right. Yeah. And um, one quick other thing, any um, advice for someone who's never trained a futurity horse, never entered a futurity, any tips to, to, for mentally to just to feel, I'm already nervous and she's only not even two yet. <laughs> well, there's nothing to be nervous about because we're all on the same playing field. Um, those colts, you know, and that's the really neat thing about it. When you come to the pen and the fraternities, we're all riding colts. 
they'd all basically have about the same amount of training on them, right? If they're four-year-olds, we've, they've got two years of training, no more than that. Um, they might have less than that, but, and those Colts, they, they humble you. And I think the biggest thing I can say with the Colts is to be consistently the same, to believe in your training program. Um, if, if you need to ride with confidence, that's the biggest thing. Um, because these Colts, they don't, they depend on you for that confidence. They, they're not, you know, they're not solid seasoned horses when we start going fast. Um, we start taking them to different pins and different situations and different kinds of pressure. And if, if you're unsure, they feel it. So no matter how you feel about it that day, make sure you know where you're going and how you're getting there and ride them that way because that, that'll help build their confidence and it'll, it'll help make everything a lot easier for you. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, I played rugby in high school and my coach always said, make a decision. If it's the right decision or the wrong decision, it doesn't matter as long as you make it hundred percent. Um, so yes. that kind of reminds me of that same kind of mindset. Yeah. And I think it's the same way with training horses, you know, make a decision and, you know, do it for a little while. If it doesn't work, we can change it, but you can't wishy wash back and forth every time you work one or else they never understand what it is you want. And then they aren't confident when you're going fast. So the more consistent you've been with your program, I think the easier it is for them when we start going fast, especially if you as a jockey have a hard time going fast. You know, like I know early on when I first started doing the fraternities, I couldn't tell you what color the barrels were like blank. When I come up the alley, I couldn't tell you what happened. I might've hit one. I wouldn't even have known I'd done it. So when I finally got to a point where I remember knowing when things went wrong and I was really excited about, I couldn't fix it, but at least I knew it went wrong. So I think the more consistent you are and the, the more diligent you are about how you train that horse and making sure that, that you're always same spot, same spot, same spot, the easier it is for them and the better result you'll have later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's awesome. This has been so sweet, Joy. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, we got one more question. All right. Uh, yes, Taylor? Oh, hold on. One second. You're muted. There you go. Am I good now? Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess my question is kind of along um, financial kind of line of it. So, like, obviously horses are not a um, cheap hobby to be in. So I'm just wondering if there's a certain point in your life, Joy, that you got to the point where, okay, I'm going to um, put kind of things on the line and go out there and spend my money on a horse and enter these fraturities. Like what, like, did you have a point that you decided, okay, I'm going to do this? Because I feel like that can be a big barrier for people is like the financial part of it, obviously. Right. Um, especially like someone like me, like I'm a first generation braille racer. I literally come from city flickers. Um, and I didn't start till I was like, um, a lot older. Um, so like, that's like a huge thing, at least in my life. So I'm just wondering if there's a point. Um, I just don't know, I guess here, people don't really talk about that kind of side of it of when they kind of throw themselves out there and just hope things work. (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, you know, when I started out, like, 
<laughs> when I bought the smoking Colina horse, so we bought two colts that year, two two-year-olds, um, $2,750 a piece. I had to go to the bank and borrow the money to do that. Um, and I think there's a point where you get comfortable enough that you're willing to spend more money on prospects. Um, but I, and I guess I would like to think that our, our odds of doing well increase when we buy something that's better bred to do the barrel race. But in reality, dude, give me an athlete and we can get it done. Um, I don't know that it has to be specifically bred a certain way or that you have to spend a certain amount of money. I've seen some horses that didn't cost hardly anything be outstanding. And I've seen horses that cost a ton, never win a nickel. Um, so I think it's just, I don't think you always have to spend a lot of money to get a good one. Now, like to buy a finished horse. Yes. That's going to be an expensive deal. Um, especially if you want a finished one that's got earnings and things like that. But I think as far as the paternity horse goes, the things I look for when I'm going to buy a colt is confirmation because they're hard enough to keep sound anyway. So if I can start with one that has good confirmation, that helps me out. Um, obviously, there's some bloodlines I don't necessarily like real well. They're a little tougher to train. I'm going to avoid those. But otherwise, I don't necessarily, still today, I don't know. I mean, still today, I panic if I have to spend 10 or 15 on one. And, you know, I also understand that to get one on the ground and raised up to, to the end of a cheerling year, if I sell it for less than 15000 I probably lost money. But I think with the fraternities, you don't have to have anything designer bred. I think you can win on stuff that's that's just an athlete. So if I have an athlete that's got good confirmation, I think I can do it cheap. Same as I can spend a ton and buy a really fancy prospect that's bred really well out of – and if if I've got the money to do that, then I'm going to make sure I get one out of a mare that was a winner or is a big producer. I'm going to worry more about my mare side than the, the stud side of it. Um, as far as the fraternity thing goes – you know, there's some that are cheaper. You can start with just adding the incentives on at the open barrel race for the fraternity and see how that goes for you. Mm. I think it's all expensive. And no matter what you do, it's all expensive. Um, I'm not sure I'm still at a point in life that I'm comfortable spending a ton of money on one. Probably the most expensive horse I've ever bought was when I bought the smoking Coalina horseback and he cost me 50,000 to get him back. Um, and I didn't know that he was ever going to run again, but that was an emotional thing for me. You know, like he didn't know me anything. He made it so I could train horses. Oh, so, you know, I owed it to him to have him back no matter what happened with him. We were fortunate and got him healthy and got to run him some more, but, um, you know, my own personal self, I can't hardly bring myself to bring, spend 15 20 on a prospect mm -hmm. yeah and it's probably kind of like a gradual transition anyways it's not like you just jump into the into the futurity with nothing hoping to make it it's probably a very gradual transition from a job that you have that's very comfortable and you know it's there it's security 
And then to go over to the futurity, it's kind of, would you say like, it's more of like a gradual transition to being confident to do that? Yeah. I mean, like I, for a long time, I, I, I went full-time horse training in 2012. Um, I worked at a dentist office for the 10 years before that. Mm-hmm. And I busted my butt to get home every night after work just as fast as I could. So I could try and haul them colts somewhere to get them exhibition. You know, we'd ride till 10 o'clock at night and get up at five in the morning and go to cleaning stalls, go to work, come home. And it was a lot of work. Um, but it was a hobby at that point, you know? So it was still a lot of fun. Um, now it's a little bit different because it is full time. Um, and I'm very fortunate because my husband is, he's a horseshoer, but he's a very successful horseshoer. So I kind of had a backup, you know, there's a, there's a backup there. It's not, life doesn't end for me if, if I don't train a winner this year or we don't sell one or I don't have a full barn of horses. So I'm, I'm very fortunate with that. Um, I think to be a full on horse trainer is a scary deal. Um, because there's a, there's a lot of money going out. Mm-hmm. We don't make a lot of money to train them. And in the barrel race, you know, in other disciplines, they might in the barrel race, we're dependent on selling horses and winning to make a living. Um, training them actually just is pretty much breaking even. So I, without having Trent, I, there's no way I would have been, and without selling smoke for a lot of money, like we did, there's no way I would have been able to just go train horses. Um, or let me I wasn't big enough risk taker to try that without having that safety net. Um, and as far as my prospects, I don't spend money. I can't lose on a prospect. I'm not going to buy a $30,000 prospect. I might buy a $10,000 one because life won't end for me. If I, if, if that one, something happens to him, he doesn't make, or he gets hurt or something along those lines. Um, but I, I think the thing Trent and I have done most, of our life with any prospect we've ever had was we didn't spend money. We couldn't afford to lose. Right now on the entry fees, I try hard to pay the big ones in, you know, that we know we've got, you know, like Fort Smith BFA and those entry fees start really early and we try to get all those paid in. Um, I do the payments on those instead of the full amount, just because that's easier for me financially to do. Um, and then there's a lot of times with some of these smaller ones at the late fees, maybe $50 or a hundred dollars that I won't enter until later because in the fraternities, you don't get your money back. You can't bet out. They don't care if your horse died. There's no excuse. Once you've paid that fee, it's gone. Now, sometimes you're lucky. They'll let you sell your entry to somebody, but majority of the time, if I'm questionable about one's soundness or, if they're handling the pressure, I'm not going to enter everything I can find. I'm going to be a little bit more careful about how I enter because I know that money's not getting refunded. There's no vet out. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely got to keep that in mind. Uh, we got, I think this is going to be the last question from Katie. So if you want to unmute yourself. Thank you. Um, okay. So I bought this Colt. I did all my research. Um, I, you know, invested the money. I knew exactly how I wanted this cold bread, bought the thing, balanced, um, talented, athletic. 
Um, he's broke. I broke him. He's coming for this year. This sucker is so dull. I've never had a horse like this before. <laughs> I've all, all the horses I've had have always been very, very forward. So any advice on, you know, how to, you know, start a horse like that on the pattern or just maybe some drills or ideas on how to get them kind of moving forward. Like he doesn't respond to, he actually pushes against my cues, which is kind of something I've never had before. Mm. Um, with a horse that wants to be kind of dull and does not want to be quick footed, I will, um, I'll work them a lot, like either down the fence or if I pick up a rein, I expect feet to move. I don't care where they go, but they need to move. And if they don't, then I'll kick on them or spur on them a little and make them understand that everything I ask for is urgent. Like there's no, mm, maybe I'll get there. Yeah, It's right now. And if, if it's not right now, there's a consequence. Mm -hmm. rather I have to spank them with the over and under if I have to roll my spur up their side or kick them a little they need to understand that they need to get quick even if they don't want to when they're asked to they need to get quick um, I've had several like that uh, a lot of times like I said going down the fence uh, rolling them off their hawks turning them around um, and then like you know if I wiggle a bridle rein feet need to go somewhere and they need mm -hmm. to be really aware of the fact that there is consequences. And I think for a little while you need to make sure that you follow through with that every time you ask until they start to understand. Yeah. Cause there's, he's smart. He will realize, okay, you're not going to do it the fifth time. Like I'll try it. I'll try you five, five or six times. So yeah, okay, that's helpful. Damn the smart ones. They're hard. <laughs> <laughs> Too smart. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, I think we're going to let you go, Joy. <laughs> this has been thank such you. a great conversation. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any final words that you want to give us all continuing on for this year? And just keep entering. <laughs> I like um, it. <laughs> I, think, I think when you're, if you're struggling, the only thing that fixes it is, fixes it is to keep going if you can. Um, and I know the the restriction stuff really sucks right now, but there is a lot of things you can do at home, a lot of drills and things you can do um, that will keep them sharp and ready to go when they do open stuff back up. And even if, if you can go oh, – another way I get Colts ready too, um, like when we couldn't go exhibition, we still went and rode with people. Like if I had a friend that had an arena down the street, we'd go ride over there and we'd ride at my house and – that way we were still able to expose those horses to other places, um, things like that when we weren't necessarily allowed to go enter anywhere. Right. Just get them off the property, seeing different things and it's like their little outing. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Does anyone have anything else they want to ask? I just want to show joy. The I asked on. Blake. I just asked Blake, I'm like, you heard of this book? And he moves the, the tray and this is sitting there. So thanks for the motivation to read it now. I need a, <laughs> he brought I need it home a all excited. <laughs> so now I'm like, I just flipped it. If anyone's wanting it, it's just under 200 pages and it looks totally attainable. So I'm yeah. going to start picking away at this. So thanks for the motivation for that, Joy. It's a really good book. In yeah. fact, I probably, I should probably go dig mine out and read it again. Yeah. Maybe start writing just, my goals down every day. Yeah, I think he heard about it on a podcast, so or listened to a podcast, and he brought it home, told me about it, and I was like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it, I'll get to it, but I'll, I'll really get to it now. Yeah, so <laughs> thanks for that. 
That was a good one. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. This has been awesome. Appreciate it. And Shelby, thanks for setting us all up. You're no problem. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yep. Have a good night, everybody. Yes. Bye now, everyone. Thank you so much. See ya.